The president is in Ohio again. It'll be one of the stories we're talking about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. In a Friday, we're wrapping up a week of news. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Atassi. And before we start, I want to have a little bit of a discussion about the death of the Queen. Mm I am struck by the fervor that America has for anything about the royalty when our whole system of government, or at least the system of government we have now, may not last if Trump and J.D. Vance get into power, was created in defiance of the tyranny of the monarchy. I mean, it's like we we wouldn't exist if it weren't for the ridiculous policies of the monarchy over centuries. And the whole thing is built on the wealth of the nation. They sapped the regular people. So I know Laura, as a dual citizen of Canada and a royal subject, has a different opinion on this. I'm just struck by it. I, I don't get why America gets all in a twist about the royalty. They're they're the bad guys. Laura. But <laughs> I mean, I think it's the institution, right? It's 70 years she's been in power. Um since what was it? She was I mean, it was right after World War II basically yeah. and and it's just lasted so long and she has conducted herself with such decorum over those years and I think it's just Americans are fascinated by royalty and because we don't have it, right? How many people have watched The Crown and We don't have it because we rebelled against the inequity of it. It's a bad institution. But we're also obsessed with celebrity, right? Like, I don't think it's that different. I think it's just a different form of celebrity worship. Yeah, and I I will admit that I have not one, not two, but three reference books about the kings and queens of England and Scotland because I was very fascinated with Henry VIII and have read, you know, stories about him. But, you know, a, a PBS has a lot to do with it. Think of all the stories, you know, that they've run, you know, Victoria and, and, and Elizabeth and Elizabeth I. And, you know, so I, I always have to pull these books out when I see these shows so I can follow the line of succession, you know, and everything. So, you know, I, and my mother's the same way. We're both fascinated with it. I got to say, I am not the most fascinated person I know with the Royals. Like my, my interest is fairly low compared to some people's, but I I did cover the Royal wedding of Will and Kate for the plain dealer whenever that was. They built their wealth on the backs of people who couldn't afford to give up their wealth. They've had a long history of abominable behavior, including generations since the queen. Anybody mm-hmm. say Prince Andrew, the pedophile? And yet this is the all-consuming topic today. It, it really boggles my mind. I guess maybe you're right, uh, Laura. Maybe there is a segment of American population that doesn't really want democracy. They want to have a king that tells them what to do and what to think. Layla, you're keeping awfully quiet here. <laughs> well, we talked about this yesterday. I I, I mean, I just think it's a tax-subsidized tabloid fodder. Uh, and I, I'm so glad that it's not my tax dollars that go to pay for for the for that family. I, I my only interest in in them was when Harry and Meghan Markle decided to leave that family. I, I paid attention to that story, and I, um, you know, everything that unfolded from that. Uh, but because there were secrets spilled, but you know, heaven help you if you click on a story about the royal family, and then uh, you know the internet 
decides that you want to read every single thing about the royal family <laughs> from then on. <laughs> yeah. Including yeah. like, you know, what what brands uh, you know, the princess wears or whatever. It's just, you know, good grief. Well, I, one thing, I, I it's awful. One thing's for sure, we will not be doing a story that questions whether Queen Elizabeth was a Browns fan. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio, and let's get to the news. We talked earlier this week about how often Donald Trump comes to Ohio, but he's not the only one. Why does Joe Biden keep coming, Laura? Because Ohio is important. I mean, he, this is his fourth trip of the year, the seventh overall of the presidency. And that's only below Pennsylvania, one of the most hotly contested swing states in the country, as well as his home state of Delaware and states like Maryland and Virginia, where basically D.C. is in the middle of it. So he's here today to tout this CHIPS Act. You know, that's going to provide $52 billion in subsidies to the American semiconductor industry and hopefully get them to build more plants here instead of in Asia. And so this is give. I love that the spokesperson said this trip's going to give Biden a chance to connect with, quote, real hardworking Americans. I mean, how much connection does a president do on any visit? Like it's it's so choreographed. You whisk in, you give a speech, you you know, shake a few hands and, and you leave. But that's why he's coming, even though, you know, Tim Ryan running for Senate hasn't been super buddy buddy. It, it is going to be a bipartisan event, though. We're going to have folks from both sides taking credit for this. I do like the idea that in our governor, Mike DeWine, we don't have one of the ridiculous far-right Republican leaders that would be hostile to the president. You, you can count on DeWine. He'll have civility, even though the president isn't in another party. And you've got to think that this will largely be a civil event. You'll have Rob Portman and Sherrod Brown, and you'll have Tim Ryan and uh, and the, the congressman from that area all from different parties, but this is viewed by everyone as a giant leap for Ohio, a big jump into the tech sector. And it's nice that that in our leadership, whether you agree with Republicans or Democrats, that you can pretty much count on them to behave themselves. Yeah, I don't think Jim Jordan's going today. I mean, no, fingers, right. well, fingers that, crossed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then I would take everything back that I just said. But but Tom Sutton, you know, he's a political scientist at Baldwin-Wallace. Baldwin he said this event's going to offer a rarity in American politics in that bipartisanship. And he thinks this signals away from these polarizing ideological fights over social issues like abortion and guns and moving campaigns towards the practical nuts and bolts issues like jobs and the economy. And I really hope he's right because I would love to see more working together on the issues that affect Americans every day. And this is largely a meaningless event. They've already started the yes. construction and tearing down houses. This is just the gold shovels thing, if they're even gold. But the idea of the bipartisan celebration of it today, that's actually pretty newsworthy because we have such polarization. So it'll be interesting to watch it develop. I yeah, hope we I'm don't right I don't, we don't normally cover uh, groundbreakings, but this is this one makes sense, too. It's a little different. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A lot of Republicans worried about Joe Blystone siphoning votes away from Mike DeWine in the spring primary for governor, although DeWine easily won. Does Blystone now face potential criminal charges because of the way he ran his renegade campaign? Well, we don't often see the potential for that in a campaign. Yeah, Except Joe in Newburgh Heights. <laughs> That's true. That is an example of a case like this. Joe Blystone has been under scrutiny by Secretary of State Frank LaRose's office for months 
for a bunch of campaign finance issues, in- including not properly recording thousands of dollars in small donations. LaRose's office flagged these irregularities in an audit back in March. He found that there was missing information about donors and missing or overly vague descriptions of expenditures and contributors and an additional $130,000 in contributions that might require refunds because they might have come from corporations which aren't allowed under Ohio law to donate directly to candidates' campaigns. So now LaRose is saying that he will refer Blystone for prosecution for campaign finance violations if he doesn't agree to what essentially amounts to a plea deal and hand over what's left of his campaign funds to the state. But, you know, and LaRose is asking the Ohio Elections Commission uh, to refer the case unless he, Blystone meets these three criteria. You know, Blystone has to, his campaign committee has to acknowledge to the Elections Commission that it violated Ohio law by intentionally failing to track and report campaign contributions. His campaign committee has to termi- has to be terminated and pay all remaining campaign funds to the Elections Commission after settling all their debts. And Blystone personally has to agree not to run for any public office in Ohio for at least four years after he signs this agreement. And if they decide that they're going to spend down their funds before uh, agreeing to the settlement offer just to you know, just to be jerks and blow past this, then the offer will be immediately revoked. So Blystone, you know, they've offered to pay 20 grand to settle this matter, but LaRose isn't having it. What surprises me, it always surprises me when people that are so clearly in the wrong don't take it seriously. I mean, we I mentioned Newburgh Heights. Trevor Elkins did this. When they yeah. came after Trevor Elkins for the way he handled his campaign fund, he kind of was a jerk with them. He, di- he, didn't, he didn't go, oh my, I really screwed up. I'm so sorry. How do I make this right? And, and really be genuine about his, his remorse. He kind of played games with them and ended up getting a, a short jail sentence and getting at, kicked out of office and getting disgraced. Joe Blystone's going down the same path. I mean, he, he's wrong. He, what he did was absolutely wrong. They've got him and they're telling him this is your way out. And instead he went public blustering. I haven't even read it yet. And this is all politics. Political yeah. Hyperbole. Yeah. And yeah. He's, he's really, you're right. It's totally, yeah. He's, he's saying that they, they say they, that a third party auditor hired by Blystone's campaign will conclude uh, by September 22nd, what corrections they say need to be made to his campaign finance report. So they're trying to, uh, you know, say that they, 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 they haven't seen the end of their analysis here. Um, Can I but, ask a question, though? I mean, it seems like that last provision, you know, barring him from running for the next four years, that seems excessive to me. I don't know. Well, uh, if you abuse the system as badly he, as he has, they're, they're, they're saying there are penalties to that. They, they're, they're negotiating. They're saying, look, we can just charge you. We can bring you into court and you could lose your liberty or whatever the penalties are. Or we have a deal for you because we think you're such a danger to the the political system because of your callous disregard for the rules that we don't want you to run for four years as a as a penalty. Uh, And really, in this case, it's an IQ test, because if you go through the court process and you're so clearly wrong, you're going to lose, as Trevor Elkins knows and as Jimmy DeMora has failed to learn. And he fought it to the end and he's serving the longest sentence of anybody in the county corruption case. I, I just when you're that wrong, you 
you work with them because mm -hmm. the alternative is is bad. So yeah, th there's nothing in the state law that says if you're convicted, well, I don't know, I guess the judge could sentence you not to run. Didn't the judge put that, impose that on Trevor Elkins? I don't know. Lately? That's a good question. I, I can't remember. I don't know. I have to check the stories, but um, but I see what Lisa's saying and, and I could see how that third requirement could be viewed as a politically motivated uh you know, mm -hmm. move Absolutely. to kind of keep him from being um, a thorn in the paw of anybody. And you know what I mean? Like keeping him mm -hmm. out of, of politics if they saw him as a threat. It's a continuing story. We will be back to it when it develops anew. You're listening to Today in Ohio. First, NOPEC kicks 550,000 people out of its utility program to save them money. Now, NOPEC's very existence is threatened as a result. Lisa, this seems very fishy. What happened? And this whole situation went south really fast. I mean, it was just a couple weeks ago that NOPEC said that they would move 550,000 of their customers to the standard first energy service plan so they could save those customers money. But the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio ordered NOPEC to show cause for doing that and explain, you know, why they shouldn't have their business certificate revoked for this. And, you know, they've set a deadline for September 28th on this thing. So, but this, this ruling didn't come as a result of the Dynagy lawsuit. So basically what NOPEC did was they were, uh, the ruling in Wednesday was in response to NOPEC's request to waive uh, the rules so they can move their customers without the standard 90-day notice. So this really has nothing to do with the Dynagy lawsuit, but it, they're making very similar claims. So PUCO Chair Jennifer Bruner says she's concerned about the plan to move so many customers. She says it casts doubt on NOPEC's ability to be an energy aggregator for the state and could cause long-term problems and higher prices for everybody in Ohio, not just NOPEC customers. So uh, remember, there is a lawsuit that Dynagy filed against NOPEC. And, you know, NOPEC's in their filing in that lawsuit, they said, well, Dynagy's disprotecting its interests and they're trying to push out a competitor. And they say that moving customers to standard service will hurt Dynagy's bottom line because they will have to take on all these new customers. And they're using that argument as a bad thing, but Dynagy's using that same argument saying, this is why, you know, we don't want to take this on. Look, nobody would be happier than me if NOPEC ceased to exist because I cannot stand, as I've mentioned before, the fact that I have to physically send them a letter to opt out of their program, that I'm automatically included in their program every darn year. I think that's ridiculous. I don't think that I should have to take a move to preserve my choices by doing it. And if you miss the deadline, you got to play games. But there are a lot of people that believe in NOPEC for it generally giving them a better price or, or sometimes for, for them to come back. So quick, I mean, here that here, NOPEC did the right thing. They said, you know what? We're costing our customers money. That's not why we were created. Let's get them into programs where they save money. That that's benevolent. That's helping people. And now we have state officials saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to dissolve you. And that just seems like, they're cooking the books to protect utilities again right. instead of serving the public who pays the bills. I I, I just think our regulatory system in Ohio is a disaster. It's one of Nan Whaley's big things in her campaign. It's just nobody's listening because she has no money and she doesn't really know how to campaign. But this is a problem. 
It is. And, you know, of course, you know, the people who are on NOPEC are thrilled because they were paying twice as much as people on First Energy Standard Service. They were paying 12 cents a kilowatt hour. You know, if you're on First Energy Standard Service with Dynegy, you know, provides 32% of that energy for the standard plan, they were paying like six and a half cents per kilowatt hour. So, yeah, but but to go from zero to 60 just seems very odd to me. It's, it's, it's again, PUCO 100% representing the utilities, regardless of what is happening to the people. They ought to be saluting NOPEC for looking out for ratepayers and helping them save money in inflationary times. Instead, they've dropped 16 tons on their head. It's, it's just not a good system we have in Ohio. It's corrupt, we know, from HB six and it and it doesn't serve us. I mean, we we probably need a constitutional amendment to figure out some way to get somebody in the regulatory industry that looks out for the people. It's today in Ohio. We've been waiting for more than a year for a new coronavirus booster to protect us from the latest Omicron variants. Now that they are approved, are the shots available in Northeast Ohio and Laura? Who should get them? Well, we all know Chris has gotten it. I'm sure you're going to tell us about how it went for you. But anybody 12 and up basically can get these if you haven't had a monkeypox shot recently. And if if you have gotten sick with COVID in the last couple of months, you might want to wait. You already have the immunity. So these boosters are called bivalence. They include the components from the original vaccine, as well as components against BA4 and BA5 Omicron variants. So experts say they're about 85% protection against Omicron. And this is important when the experts are predicting a possible fall wave of COVID that peaks around December 1st, right in between Thanksgiving and Christmas when nobody wants to be sick. Yeah, I, I, they, they hit the pharmacies this week in parts mm-hmm. of Northeast Ohio. I, in every chance I get, I get in there. I'm one of the first in line because I haven't had COVID and I don't want to get COVID. Uh, and they said they're fielding a lot of calls for it, which I was a bit surprised by because we carried news reports that a lot of Americans didn't get any of the boosters, that mm-hmm. they got the original vaccine, but they haven't received the boosters. And as you said, anybody that's had COVID pretty much since the beginning of summer, already has the immunity to the Omicron fourth and fifth variants. Uh, but they they said demand is pretty high. A lot of people are calling to make their appointments. I had to go pretty far to get mine. Yeah, you can get your flu vaccine at the same time, which is convenient. So I just signed up for mine to get both of them next Wednesday. And because I'm scheduling a little further out, I only have to go a couple of highway exits away. Um, but you're right. In six in Ohio, 67% of the population ages five and up have had at least one dose of the original COVID vaccine. Only 34% have received a booster. And that's behind the national rates of 84% and 48%. But even that, you're, you're looking at half. Like half the people who got the vaccine ever got the booster when I was pretty much like, as soon as you can give me one, I will take one, please. Thank you. And I did get the flu shot and I had them both in the same arm. So my arm is not in a good place today, (laughs) (laughs) but I wanted to have one good arm. Anyway, it's a good story on Cleveland.com. We lay it all out, answer all the questions. One thing I don't think is in there, Laura, is whether you need to have the same kind of shot. So if you've been a Pfizer person for the past year and a half, do you need to be a Pfizer person again? Uh, You know, I don't know the answers from Julie's story, but everything I've ever read is that you can mix these. And I know in a lot of other countries, it didn't matter. You could get Pfizer and then Moderna. Um, 
the one thing is, I think the Moderna, I forget which one, you can't get it till you're 16. So there's one, sorry, the, Moderna is authorized for 18 and up. Pfizer is authorized for 12 and up. So if you're between 12 and 18, you can only get the Pfizer. I want to say pregnant women can get the new booster, no problem with that. And kids ages 5 to 11, you should be able to get it in one to two months. So just in time for that fall peak, hopefully we'll be able to get our kids vaccinated again. I think it's largely happenstance, but I think I've always had the Pfizer. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Jim Renacci lost the statewide battle for the U.S. Senate, and then he lost his bid to unseat Mike DeWine on the Republican primary side for governor in the spring. So how is this guy getting a chance to rewrite the state's Republican Party bylaws? Wouldn't his losses discredit him as an authority? What's the story, Layla? Yeah. Well, first, before I I move on to that, I want to quickly answer a question from earlier in the podcast. Trevor Elkins, (laughs) as part of his plea deal, did agree not to run for public office again until after 2028. So what LaRose is asking for in Joe Blystone's case is not unique. I just wanted to throw that out there just so we have it all here. <laughs> but anyway, okay. now that that's settled, on to Jim Renacci. We we had this tidbit of news this week for subscribers to Capital Letter. It seems Renacci could gain an internal operations role with the Ohio Republican Party if Summit County GOP Chairman Brian Williams manages to depose the current Ohio Chairman Bob Paducic. That's a decision that's expected to happen at a scheduled party meeting today. If that leadership challenge is successful, Renacci, who's now the Medina County Republican Party chairman, said he would take on this role that would include overhauling the party's internal bylaws and helping develop a party platform. That would be a temporary gig. It's designed to expire after three or four months. Obviously, it seems like Renacci's participation in this poses a little bit of a conflict, right, when you consider the fact that at the heart of the party upheaval is how the party went about endorsing Renacci's opponent in the governor's race. You would think that this would not be the best uh, fit for him or that he would be the best fit for this job, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, he keeps he keeps running around out there making his ridiculous statements, and he was rejected twice in a big way. I mean, he, he Sherrod Brown trounced him, and Mike DeWine won handily, even, even though there, you know, there was somebody else on the ballot that could have drawn votes away. And yet he's going to be an authority in the Republican Party. This gets 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 to what we hear from a lot of people that are in the Republican Party, that it's being taken away from them. We started a column today, a monthly column by former Solon Mayor Bob Paulson, who wrote to me and he said, you know, everything I read from from conservatives is way too far to the right. And what I read from liberals is way too far to the left. There's nobody really reflecting the center, which is where I think a lot of Ohioans are. And so we're going to run a monthly column from him. Well, Renacci is exactly that. He's the guy that's dragging the party to authoritarian levels. And that's not where Ohio is. Why should he be the guy writing the party bylaws? Don't know. I know. I know. It's it's uh, but but he um, I, have, I, I don't have an answer. Anyone else have a thought to weigh in here about why Renacci is still uh, invested with so much power? I have no, no idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I, I still have a hard time believing that this next story is true, but it is. Can it be true that for decades, black people were automatically downgraded on kidney transplant wait lists solely because of their race? And has that practice now ended? I, I at least I just cannot I cannot understand how this could have gone on so long with no notice. 
Well, and there was a little bit of a, they didn't do enough research onto the differences because let's face it, there are medical differences between races. There are, I mean, you know, and there are risk factors that, that reflect that across all diseases, but there was a race collection, a race correction formula that booted many blacks off the kidney transplant list. They finally removed that correction. It's called the estimated glomerular filtration rate or EGF. It's used by the United Network for Organ Sharing to determine patients' eligibility for the kidney transplant waiting list. You have to have a score of 20 or lower to be allowed on that list. But they found over the years, you know, that you can have two patients who have identical, you know, medical conditions except for their race. So a white patient might get a score of 19, a black patient having the same issues would get a score of 25 because of this correction formula. But using limited data years ago, researchers found that some lab results for black patients trended higher than whites. They universally applied that to all blacks despite not understanding why there was this discrepancy. So they didn't research why this was so different. This, you know, kept blacks off the transplantation list. It also kept black people from being kidney donors or referred to kidney specialists when their disease was still manageable. Uh, Dr. Crystal Gadegbeku of the Cleveland Clinic says, the original formula, 20 years old, it was based on studies, you know, of white men. And then they found the difference in races on kidney function blood tests. And they included that into the formula, but she wanted to stress that it's not racist to do this. There are differences in races and ethnicities and how they react to disease and their risk factors. But she says that race is a poor genetic marker and we should maybe rethink that. I, I don't know, Lisa. I just think that if if you're putting together the eligibility list and one of your factors automatically takes an entire race and puts them toward the back of the line, that you'd rethink your process. That that you'd say, you know, we just don't want to be that kind of society where where one race gets less of a chance at living than others because of the the parameters we've put together. I, I, I'm just surprised that, I mean, it, it's not like this was a hundred years ago. This is something that was developed about 20 years ago. If I'm reading the story, Correct. right. I, you know, that's almost, you know, it's 2002. It's like, you really, you're going to create a system that says, okay, black people, sorry, but you, you don't get the same chance of surviving as, as others do. It was a stunner. When we were talking about this in the newsroom on Wednesday, because Laura was talking about the stories that were coming, and I, I just had a hard time believing that this had existed. And it did. It's a good thing it's over. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a research oversight. It was a research oversight. And that doesn't condone anything. But I don't know that it kept all black people off the list. We don't know that. It just said it kept some bit, you know. So, yeah. And But I hear you, Chris. But yeah, the, you know, there are ethnic differences in disease risk factors and you can't, you know, you can't deny that. But yeah, to let this question hang unanswered for 20 years is pretty bad. Yeah. Okay. It's today in Ohio. How is a university circle brewery owner branching into new businesses that should make it a lot easier for others in the restaurant business to save money and get supplies faster? Laura, he's the restaurant industry version of Sean McDonald, saving you money. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Or like an Uber version too. I'll explain it. So he's the owner of Jolly Scholar. His name is Matt Van. And he invented these two companies. One is called Greenlight Grocery that plans to launch in about a week. That's going to connect restaurants with distributors so you can better buy your supplies. And then there's Supply Now, which began in January, that is like an Uber that you basically are paying someone to run your errands for you. If you need something you know, random from Lowe's or you need to get things between your different restaurants, they can run that. So, But it, it sounds like they could save huge amounts of money. For Jolly Scholar, they said they could they buy about $800,000 a year in groceries and the green light will save them around $120,000 a year, which is huge when these restaurants operate on really pretty small margins. It's free for restaurants to sign up. Um, and then they use the service, they pay the distributors, and that distributor gives a percentage back to Van Van's company to make this happen. And basically, it works like when you Google a flight, you know, when you, you look on um, Google to see which has the cheapest flights, where you want to go. They will aggregate all the prices and you can pick what to buy. And he makes a little money and they save a little money and all in all, everybody gets ahead a bit. Yeah, it's like 250 items on the list from bottled water to hand soap to toilet paper because you obviously think about food. You don't think about everything else they buy, you know, the takeout containers, the napkins, anything they need for the back of the house, for the restaurant. And this is kind of purchasing power for these restaurants who, you know, small businesses, it's difficult to make ends meet. Okay, it's today in Ohio. That pretty much is the end of our time. So thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Lara. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back on Monday for another discussion of the news. 